Hello, this is Tina Ryan. I'm a member of the RCPE Trainee and Members Committee. And today we've got a podcast on syncope. I'm very lucky to be joined by Dr. Mitchell, who is a consultant at the Penelzworth University Hospital in Glasgow. And she is an expert in syncope, but I'll let her describe a bit more about herself. Okay, well, thanks very much, Tina. And thanks for asking me to do this podcast. My name's Lara Mitchell, and I'm a geriatrician at the Queen Elizabeth. I have been passionate about cardiology and syncope ever since I was a trainee. I did my training in Newcastle, half my training in Newcastle, which is where I worked and had my spark ignited in the cardiovascular investigation unit. So when I became a consultant in 2004, that's when I started setting up the syncope service here, and I've been here ever since. So my first question would be, what is syncope? So I think that's a really good question, because before we start this podcast, we all want to know we're talking about the same thing. And anybody who comes to my syncope clinic, the juniors all know that that's the question I'm going to ask them. What's the definition? So it's kind of the word on the street now. They've kind of stolen my thunder. Um, So we talk about TLOC, so transient loss of consciousness, which is a state of real or apparent loss of consciousness with loss of awareness, which is characterized by a period of unconsciousness and abnormal motor control which is of a short duration. And then syncope is transient loss of consciousness due to cerebral hypoperfusion, which is rapid in onset, short duration, and a prompt recovery. So basically, TLOC is syncope and its differential diagnosis. Have you ever blacked out, Tina? Yes, I am. I've, unfortunately, I've got low blood pressure. I fainted a lot in medical school. So so 50% of us will black out in our lifetime. And I've blacked out as, as well. So that's 100% on this call. And 70% of those blackouts will be due to syncope. And I think it's important before you see somebody that it's got a bimodal presentation. So it's more common in teens. And then there's a bit of a gap. And then as it gets progressively more common in our older years. It's also really common. So that, that's great you've got a podcast about it because it's 1% to 3% of ED admissions will present with transient loss of consciousness. It's really common for us all to see at the front door. How do you go about assessing somebody who comes in with a history of syncope? When I see somebody at the front door, what I'm thinking and what's going through my head is, have they got transient loss of consciousness? And if they do, is it syncope or not? And when, I've, when I'm thinking, yes, it is syncope, I want to know what the causes are. So obviously syncope is due to cerebral hyperperfusion. So it's either going to be, and I've got a little framework in my head, it's not difficult a cardiovascular cause, so a cardiac arrhythmia, either a brady or much more likely a brady than a tachy or inherited syndromes, a structural heart disease. So that's on one side. And those are the ones that we cannot miss. Or it could be due to a blood pressure cause. So neurally mediated syncope. So in that group, vasovagal syncope, situational syncope, cough, micturition syncope, more rarely carotid sinus hypersensitivity. And then the other blood pressure cause is orthostatic hypotension. So postural hypotension, that lack of vasoconstriction when someone turns up. And obviously there's a huge amount of things that can cause that, the biggest being drugs. Um, So over 200 medications can cause postural hypertension. And then you've got your primary and secondary causes, your secondary causes being diabetes, alcohol, amyloid, more rarer things, paraneoplastic, etc. So I think when you're approaching somebody with syncope, if you're thinking it's syncope, then you're thinking in your head, have they got a cardiovascular cause? Is it a blood pressure cause? Or just a plug for the older adult, they often have a third of them will have more than one cause for their syncope. Fair enough. So it's not as simple as 
someone stood up, fell down, it must just be blood pressure and some real thought needing to go into it. So yeah. what, what assessments or investigations would you do at the front door? The assessments at the front door, the first and most important thing is it's all about the history. So, and getting that collateral history. So I don't know what your favourite movie is, Tina. Sadly, it's probably Cars. Cars 1 or Cars 3. Okay, so pick your scene. And then what you want to do when someone presents with syncope is describe what's going on in that scene. Mm -hmm. So you want to be pernickety about the history. You want to know everything about what's going on that day. So for me, the most mem one of the most memorable scenes is when Harry met Sally. You know that scene and when Harry yeah. met Sally. I saw that about 10 years ago, but I can still describe exactly what happened that day. Mm. So what you want to be doing is it's not a case of just finding out they blacked out. It's what happened. Was it a hot day? Um, had they had anything to eat and drink? Had they had a stressful situation? Have they had a change of drugs? And one of the best questions that I find really helps me find out about the causes what was going on that was different that day because mm -hmm. you don't black out every day so can you attribute what was different that day that could have caused this episode of transient loss of consciousness the other really important thing to think about is the three p's okay. in history taking so what were the provokers and we've talked a little bit about that in the description the next thing you want to talk about is the prodrome what symptoms did the patient have did they feel dizzy? Did they have any cardiac symptoms? Did they have nausea, vomiting? What are they describing? Was there any visual disturbance? Was there any aura? So you, you're wanting to find out what their prodrome, what was going on before they actually blacked out. And the last P is posture. So it's quite different as somebody's standing up to sitting down. So what were they doing at the time? Were they lying in bed? Were they sitting down? Were they standing up? And what you want to do is combine all of that data with those symptoms and what age they are to try and come up with what you think is going on. And I think all the time when I'm seeing somebody, I'm just thinking those things. Did they black out? Is it syncope? And I, can I find a cause for this? Okay. And again, in the older adults, it's a little bit difficult because 50% of blackouts are not witnessed. So you might not have that witness history that's key into saying they changed color, doc. They were sweaty. They were confused for a long time after. I don't think it's, and, and there was some jerking. I'm not sure if it was syncope. It may have, you know, it may be something else going on. The other thing is, is a third of people are amnesic for their event. So sometimes you're not going to get these provokers and these prodromes and people won't be able to share that with you. So that's all important when assessing the older adult. If someone is amnesic for that episode, can you make a diagnosis based on the proceeding in the program? Or do you really need that collateral and that kind of witness statement or that witness Absolutely. I mean, sometimes the patient will not be able to tell me much. And then I go on and get the collateral history and it just throws into light what's going on. So I think the more information you can find, it's always worth phoning and finding out that collateral. And, and often in clinic, so we all see all new patients up at the clinic, but I'll phone any witness histories I can. And, and obviously, if they're coming in through acute admissions, phoning as many as you can to get that witness history. So you said to me, what can you do at the front door? I think what we're talking about is the cornerstone assessment. Mm -hmm. So that's getting that history, which is key, describing what's going on in that movie of that person's symptom. Examination is really heart sounds, a quick neuro, a proper lying and standing blood pressure. Granted, that's difficult with the time you've got, but as close to the gold standard as you can. So that's lying somebody down for five minutes, taking the blood pressure and then taking it again up to three minutes and looking for symptoms mm -hmm. and the 12 at ECG. 
So that's your absolute cornerstone assessment. Clearly, if you're seeing at the front door, you'd be thinking about some baseline biochemistry, some blood sugars. And in the older adult, you may tweak it a little bit. You may look for get up and go test, eye movements, whole pike, depending on what symptoms they're presenting with. But that's the cornerstone assessment of syncope. And we always think about what investigations we do next. And I certainly have had a lot of discussions with consultants about are 24-hour tapes any use if you're not getting those symptoms any day? Are they worthwhile doing? Definitely not. You're absolutely right. So 24-hour tapes make us feel better, but the pickup rate is less than 1%. Having said that, monitoring is key. So if, if you're thinking a cardiovascular diagnosis, you do want to do monitoring. If you're admitting the patient, you'll obviously get telemetry. They're now saying two weeks of monitoring is the key optimal time for pickup, okay, which is difficult. And, you know, we can't always do that within the systems we work. So at the front door, you're doing that cornerstone assessment. And you know what? 80% of the time, you'll know what's going on. It's only in that smaller group that you'll be thinking, I need to do some more structured workup. And what we're trying to do when we investigate patients is to get symptom reproduction while monitoring. So did they get the same symptoms when the monitor was on? Did they get the same symptoms when we do the exercise test, when we do a tilt test? Obviously, echo, we're looking for structural heart disease. And then we do quite a lot of blood pressure monitors. So you're looking for any periods of hypotension, looking at overall blood pressure control so that you can change and manipulate medication in order to try and minimize symptoms. So that that would be my armory of investigations, really. Try to avoid CT scans, heads on admission. There's a subset of patients that, well, there's always pressures at the front door. Who should I be feel comfortable about sending home? Okay, that's a really good question, because although ED admissions, we get one to three percent presenting with syncope, 50 percent of those will be admitted. And yet they have a very low risk of mortality. So I think we've developed a syncope pathway with key stakeholders at the QEUH. And we operate it via like a traffic light system. So we've got the green go. Who can you discharge? And really, we're saying in that anybody with a blood pressure cause, so uncomplicated vasovagal syncope, orthostatic hypertension. So so in that, you're thinking, have they had anything with a sensory trigger, postural change? Have they got situational syncope? So those things that I highlighted were a blood pressure cause. Obviously, if, if you're moving over to amber, you're starting to think about, well, if they come in and out, even if it is a blood pressure cause, do I need somebody to look at them? So you, you, you may be thinking, I want to get them to a specialist clinic. And then there's the group that you're worried about. Who are the group that I should be worried about and I should really bring in? Okay, so your, your high-risk cardiac patients, so the high-risk cardiac causes of syncope are the ones that you're worried about. So anybody that's blacking out during exercise, that's got cardiac symptoms of palpitations, chest pain, anybody who blacks out while supine, you've got to be concerned about. Anybody with an abnormal ECG, you're going to be looking at that. And then there's that group that are just one step down. So potentially those with a family history, you might want to think about a more rapid follow-up, but not admission. People with a lack of prodrome, you know, those ones you can't let go. They need rapid follow-up. And obviously you've got your group that are injured, you know, despite any of those things, you might need to think about admitting them. So we use a pathway rather than a risk stratification score, but there's a lot of good syncope risk stratification scores about The two I point junior medical staff towards are the ESOL study, which is an Italian study. And there's just four things to remember. And it's just almost a kind of this group just be a little bit thoughtful about 
So age over 65, so anyone who's a bit older, a cardiovascular history, a lack of prodrome, so someone who doesn't have any symptoms prior to blacking out, and an abnormal ECG. And in that study, they calculated their one-year mortality risk. So if you had all four, you had a 60% mortality risk. So just four things to think about in that tool. And I think that just sifts in the bottom of your head. Oh, even if somebody comes in with an unexplained blackout, if they've got one or two of those things, then I'm thinking unexplained blackout, but high risk cardiac, even though I haven't proven it. Mm. And then the other one that was out just in 2019, which has been validated subsequently in 6,000 patients is the Canadian risk stratification score. And that goes into a little bit more detail. It looks at clinical evaluation, investigations, and in your diagnosis and ED, and it calculates the 30-day mortality. So it's a little bit more time-consuming, but again, it just gives you a wee bit more information. The ESC guidelines steer you away from using that as a tool, whether to admit or or not to admit. It's just supportive of what you're going to do. And if I am going to send someone home, the thing that always flashes up in my head is what driving advice do I give for Mm -hmm. sympathy? Absolutely. So I would say five years ago, we, we had a lot of patients driving to the syncope clinic. And then we'd have to deliver this advice. And I think we are getting better at it. And our track care referral asks, have you given driving advice? And you can't progress through without doing that, which is good. So basically, most people who present with syncope, probably you will have to consider some kind of driving advice because the only ones who can drive are people with vasovagal syncope, people with OH that have blacked out while standing up. If you're unexplained or you've blacked out while seated, they can't drive and they need to inform the DVLA. So it's important that they take that next step of informing the DVLA. So unless it's basal so it's triggered or it's orthostatic hypertension, those are the only two situations you can still drive. Yep. Is there any advice to give for postural hypertension because it's so common in both the elderly and in younger patients? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I think part of all of this is, and we, we don't have time Time is limited when we're at the front door, but we need to empower patients with what we think is going on and also teach them about avoiding their triggers, whatever they may be. So avoiding what triggers their symptoms. Behavioral modification is the key. And by what I mean by that is with vasovagal syncope is drinking plenty of fluids, two liters by midday, vasotensing maneuvers, so muscle clenching, crossing and crossing legs orthostatic hypotension. There's a lot of evidence recently about bolus water drinking. So 150 mils of water before standing can help elevate the blood pressure and has been shown to improve symptoms and vasotensing maneuvers again in that group. So we've got patient information leaflets for both of those. And I would suggest definitely give the information, but also give them something supporting to read afterwards because we all forget things and then they've got something to read afterwards. I think I, I certainly would struggle to drink two litres by midday. That is anyone over the age of 65, I imagine that's a real challenge. It is a lot. And obviously, you've got to balance that up with what your symptoms are. So it's not black and white, but it, if it's helpful, try and f- I think the message is fluid bulk in the morning and, and don't let yourself get dehydrated, especially on a warm, hot day. And obviously, you're a syncope expert. You've got your service. What patients do you find difficult to diagnose? We have a syncope multidisciplinary meeting. We meet once a month with cardiology and neurology. And I was trying to think through what were the patients that we all discussed frequently that came to that group. 
And I think the ones that we discuss most are that syncope versus seizure. Mm. Is this syncope or is it a seizure? And that's what I've learned a lot in the last few years with our neurologist that we've got that's joined the group and think about those things more. So the things to think about if it's a seizure are a trigger is rare. It can be slightly longer duration. They don't have those vasomotor responses, so they're not pale. Um, Tongue biting. If you bite the lateral aspect of your tongue, much more likely to be a seizure. You can bite your tip of the tongue with vasovagal syncope. You've got a much more prolonged recovery. You've got an aura. But, you know, if I can think of a guy I had recently in clinic and he had two lots of symptoms. He had some blackouts that were unexplained that didn't quite ring true for a seizure. And yet he was having these loss of awareness episodes that his wife witnessed that he was unaware of. He also had path and pauses on his monitor. So it was that whole thing. Does he actually have transient loss of consciousness syncope due to an arrhythmia? And is he having seizure type symptoms as well? So it's kind of just distilling out and and saying, this is what I think is most likely, but I've not excluded this completely. Because I think, as you know, patient symptomatology evolves over time. And the more more symptoms they get, almost you're building a picture. Yeah. Okay. And... You obviously run a syncope clinic, so what do you do in your syncope clinic? So I run a syncope clinic with my colleague, Dr. Leslie Anderton, and we have a track care referral and we have 50% from GP, most of the rest from unscheduled care. So ED, we've increased um, hugely over the last five or 10 years. And what we do is we see people with more unexplained transient loss of consciousness. So we're not looking to see the people that have got vasovate, the things that you know everything is going on, you, you know what the diagnosis is. So it's more unexplained loss of consciousness. And there we're, we're doing what we've just discussed, taking the history, phoning the collateral, doing that cornerstone and trying to investigate after and bringing any, any ones that we feel are unexplained into that group where we've got rapid contact with both cardiology and neuro. So often if you're bringing up abnormal monitors, you're deciding on whether you want to put loop recorders in. You can fast track over to neurology if you feel it's more seizure rather than syncope. So I think that's what the clinic is like. We've reduced our unexplained referrals of TLOC to less than 5%. So people are referred with unexplained and then through history taking and investigations, we try and make a diagnosis. Obviously, there's that group with one unexplained transient loss of consciousness and 50% of them will not have another one. Hmm. So often you do that. I call it a wee MOT workup. So I'm looking at the heart. I'm looking at the blood pressure. And if there's nothing concerning in that, we may then just have to wait to see what's going on. Unless, of course, they're high risk. But the evidence for loop recorders is two unexplained blackouts. So you've got to rationalize your investigations as well, because an ILR costs a thousand pounds, obviously. And how did you go about setting that service up? I think I started off with a clinic alternate weeks initially when I was a consultant. And really it was through growing connections, talking to everybody, getting interested parties, growing an interested connected group of people who wanted to work towards a better system for patients presenting with transient loss of consciousness. And it's evolved over time. So now we have two of us doing that clinic every week and regular MDT linkups with interested stakeholders. And the pathway, I think, was the key change in how to refer into the service, because often these people come in again and then are picked up now. 
if you think if you don't have a service that looks after syncope, they can just go off and see anybody. You know, they see one specialty, they're discharged because it's not the thing that they do. Then they go and see somebody else and they're seen and discharged because it's not the specialty they do. But it's just coordinating that approach. And for me, it doesn't matter who, who runs that service. It's the person who's interested, got the skills and has got the connections. And what do you do if you've not got a local syncope service? As a junior doctor? Yeah. I think that's difficult. So we talked a little bit before about um, what other evidence out there there is. The, the ESC guidelines on syncope evaluation that were updated in 2018 are what I would point towards people poor. I suppose it's training yourself. Nice mm. TLOC guidelines are the other things that are good to read. So making sure you're up to speed and you know what to do. I think it's difficult as a junior. You can't set up a service. So you have to find your links where you think people are going to be investigated in the most appropriate manner. And that might in some places be acute medicine. It might be cardiology. It might be the geriatricians. So I think finding that interested party as a consultant, if you're interested, start making those relationships. That's what I'd say, because it's really rewarding. And we published a paper a couple of years ago in British Journal of Cardiology to say that not only does it coordinate care and is better care for, for patients presenting with transient loss of consciousness, but it reduces length of stay, reduces admissions. So I think that's key for the managers to know that. And there's a raft of other studies out there that all are saying the same thing. So coordinated approach for patients with TLOC is what I'd say. So as ever, the key is all the good history and communication and multidisciplinary working. Absolutely. Not one person makes a difference. It's, it's everybody as a team. So thank you very much for talking about it. You certainly, there's lots of good guidelines and places to look for further information. Is there anywhere else that you think you could go if there's someone's interested in learning more about syncope? So I'd point you towards the ESC guidelines and the NICE TLOC guidelines. There's obviously courses. We ran a course at the start of the year on syncope still everybody's problem yeah. and we're going to run that every year so get yourself on a course if you're interested and make connections around Scotland we're certainly starting to build those so um, we've got colleagues around Scotland all doing some really good work around syncope and hopefully being involved in, in research as well we've got Matt Reed in Edinburgh if you're in Glasgow come and visit the syncope service I'm always keen to to spread the syncope and knowledge and love as far as we can that's brilliant. Thank you so much for chatting to me. No problem. Thanks very much, Tina.